Hey friends, normally I get a little long-winded at the beginning, and I'm sorry about that, kind of. Today, I get right to business, because I'm excited to talk about a very specific and short-lived movement known as the Diggers. These are the English Diggers. They derive from the Levelers, and uh, their leadership is under Gerard Winstonley. And it's a fascinating story that has implications for today, friends. I do believe so. And uh, just to get a sense of what the, the, the crew known as the Diggers was about, here is a song from that time, but performed by, believe it or not, the band Chumbawamba. Stacy and I will be jumping into our conversation right after this song, but you should probably pay attention to the lyrics. It's not just, uh, you know, frivolous here. This is a nice way of kind of setting up what they were about. So, friends, thanks for being along with us for this adventure. Here we go. You noble diggers all stand up now, stand up now. You noble diggers all stand up now. The wasteland to maintain, see cavaliers by name. Your digging does maintain, and persons all defame. Stand up now, stand up now. Your houses they pull down, stand up now, stand up now. Your houses they pull down, stand up now. Your houses they pull down to fright your men in town. But the gentry must come down and the poor shall wear the crown. Stand up now, diggers all. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now. Your freedom to uphold, seen cavaliers are bold to kill you if they could, and rights from you to hold. Stand up now, diggers all. The gentry are all round, stand up now, stand up now. The gentry are all round, stand up now. The gentry are all round, on each side they are found. Their wisdom's so profound, to cheat us of our ground. Stand up now, stand up now. The lawyers they conjoin, stand up now, stand up now. The lawyers they conjoin, stand up now. To arrest you they advise, such fury they devise. The devil in them lies, and have blinded both their eyes. Stand up now, stand up now. The clergy they come in, stand up now, stand up now. The clergy they come in, stand up now. The clergy they come in and say it is a sin that we should now begin our freedom for to win. Stand up now, diggers all. Against lawyers and against priests, stand up now, stand up now. Against lawyers and against priests, stand up now. For tyrants they are both, even flat against their oath. To grant us they are loath, free meat and drink and cloth. Stand up now, diggers all. The club is all their law, stand up now, stand up now. The club is all their law, stand up now. The club is all their law, to keep all men in awe. But they know vision saw, to maintain such a law. Stand up now, diggers all. All right, Stacy, this weekend... Everybody, you know, I want to I wanna look at the news and see what's going on in the world. Lots of great stuff. Uh, not great stuff, but terrifying stuff to kind of uh, get into. But what is everybody covering this weekend, baby? Well, the, <clears throat> the death of Queen Elizabeth. Yes. And then all rise, or I guess all kneel. I don't know exactly. I didn't see it. I'd, yeah. King Charles. Long live King Charles. And a fascinating thing, of course, never really occurred to me until this moment, hearing the title Charles III, how fascinating this is for today's show, because in many ways, our show 
is kind of set or the conversation about this group of folks, the diggers, is set in the context of the execution by the parliamentary forces of Charles I. So the mm. King Charles I, he gets taken out by the folks that were the parliamentarians. And this creates a really interesting landscape. And I mean now political landscape. What had happened was there were people that were empowered. They had a little bit of wealth. And they were, they were the folks that were talking about freedom. But they were talking about freedom for people who were pretty empowered and pretty um, often wealthy. But they didn't like the fact that there were these old traditional power structures. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, some people, poor people, uh, oppressed people would say, okay, this is great. We're getting rid of the King of England. And now this allows us to have a, a place of freedom for our own selves so that we can thrive. And pretty quickly, as you see in many movements, the truly poor people get crushed regardless of who's in control, whether it's barons or uh, is it folks that are, you know, party members of a, of a revolutionary party or whatever, mm -hmm. the people who really were poor and, and kind of uh, on the outs uh, in terms of finances and so forth, they weren't getting uh, everything that they thought they should be able to get. That's what always happens. But the other thing I want to back up for <laughs> yeah. a second, because um, I know <clears throat> the time when we were living in England and stuff that, you know, there was always sort of the rumors of, you know, would um, they kind of pass over uh, Prince Charles as king. And, and they definitely talked about that in the day, you know, but I realize it was, it's interesting because as you see, like all this happening and it's just so kind of automatic and, and of course it's like, you know, of course it's, it's uh, King Charles. And I think that I realized if they bend the rules and don't follow the tradition, they don't have anything. They have to stick right. to tradition. They have to stick to the rules of how this goes or else they're just making it up, which makes it then obsolete. Right. But if it's very structured and it for sure is, you know, King Charles, mm -hmm. then then everything kind of keeps going according to plan. Now, people can abdicate it even there. Elizabeth, uh, the one who just died, Elizabeth II, she was, you know, well, she had a very seriously beat into her, uh, not not uh, physically, I'm sure, <laughs> um, you know, um, that you have to keep these protocols mm -hmm. because the only reason she was in line for the throne was because of her uncle abdicating. Right. Uh, so, and that was upsetting to people. I think that's so, so interesting, leaving something, you know, um, leaving a religion, quitting a job. These acts are sometimes more upsetting uh, well and it, it's also interesting because i mean her life very much was a duty right like yes she didn't get her own freedom Elizabeth, in any of it. No. yes right she just she had to do you know she had a role to fill and that's what she did so that yeah so the interesting thing with queen elizabeth is just that her life was just all about duty and she didn't get her own personal choices and so um you know that that's what like the uncle's factoring in like hmm am i gonna make this my whole life it's right and he no, was a questionable character but he didn't want to be constrained in that way there's yeah. no there's no personal freedom in that role like everything is already kind of laid out for you you know mm -hmm. and it's funny as a child you think oh you know wouldn't it be cool to be a king or a queen or something you know you hear the stories or whatever mm -hmm. And then, and then you realize now, like there's like, it's I'm almost like not having a life to have to fulfill that role. And in many ways, outside of full spectrum emancipation, what we find is people suffer top to bottom. So yeah, cry yeah. me a river for the, for the monarch, but everybody's trapped in, yeah, you're in a hierarchy. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, this is a common conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like that we can recognize that the people in the system, even the overlords, trapped they're in whatever trapped their in the system. role is. They're, they've got a greater responsibility. But um, as you said, it's the poor that always are the ones that suffer the most. Indeed. And, uh, and, and this, though, the part that I find most interesting is there's a kind of liberalism and conservatism that is still for the upwardly mobile, bourgeois, mm. middle class, or lesser nobility. Right. So you, you have this idea that there are barons that want their rights, but the rights of the average like person that's at the bottom of this, that, that's that's obviously not something that people are always talking about. 
And uh, I think that's true in America in many ways, that people often are talking about freedom, but the conversation largely is in the the middle classes to upper middle classes. Right. The poor don't have a lot of uh, opportunity for venues. Um, they don't have as much funding. There, there are all sorts of things there. So this movement, the diggers movement, is meant to try to you know, address this. Now, one of the things that I found strangest growing up is this weird just social construct of a fishing license. It just would seem that you go out into the wilderness and as long as you're taking what you need for yourself to eat and as long as you're not, you know, threatening an endangered species that you should be able to have this. But that's the that's the problem. People don't stop. Not you know, some yeah. will, but there's there's too many that would if they see an advantage to themselves, you know, and not just taking what they need, if they can take more and Certainly. sell it or that's whatever, a big deal which then, people do yes and that's yeah. you know and then we then sometimes we end up overfishing and to kind of protect that then well, this actually sense. what you're saying there is is really suitable to this conversation because well it reminds me of the data gene when yep. you you know the more rules you have to have it just shows that society is out of whack and that people are will take more than what they what they need if they can find the license or something but 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 there's two sides of this so when the commercial fishing happens if there is some kind of taxation back to the people that's not the worst concept in other words if there is an entity that is taking common resources mm -hmm. then they're essentially paying rent to the people we'll get to this idea so in a in a just society if you take something from the land be it plants or animals or oil or timber that you're you're giving back mm -hmm. right there's an exchange there a mutuality the idea that there should be some wealthy people that just own the forests this is the problem and that or the, the or the poor lake. people have to rent or whatever it is and that we have to rent from them that's the reversal that's the unjust reversal according to this gotcha. <laughs> you know this kind of concept of the diggers which we're we're getting to but the fishing licenses of course have to be there because people had already exploited all of the fisheries yeah Indigenous people have been living here um, on the Willamette Valley here, the Columbia River. They would harvest their food. It was one of the greatest areas, uh, as far as uh, Native American culture, one of the greatest areas in the sense that you didn't have to have as much warfare because there was a, a kind of abundance, both the plant abundance, but also uh, the, the beautiful runs of fish. When the Europeans arrive and they start to have this river filled up with their canning and the fishing and all of this. And it depletes the natural resources and they don't pay back the people or the, the folks that were there living off the land. This is where the great injustice happens. This is a biblically unjust thing, according to this group of folks that I'm interested in for today's show, the diggers, right? So the, the question that the diggers are going to address is, what is my basic natural right as a human? Do I have the right to exist? And the spiritual anarchist answer is, we have a right, and this is important, we have a right to a space with boundaries for our safety, mm -hmm. a hut, a, a little piece of property that you can gate off so that you can have that sense of security uh, and protection for your family. Ideally, this is in a community where people know each other, in the village, and uh, this is uh, this is a healthy kind of society. Last night, actually, uh, we were outside sitting on the porch, and there was a um, a mentally ill person just pacing up and down in the street, middle late of at the night, street. middle of the street, but right in front of us, and didn't go anywhere. And we were kind of okay with it. <laughs> As he didn't seem to be a threat. I mean, normally I would have been horrified by, by this prospect. Um, and then the fellow down the road just called out, you guys cool? And we said, yeah, we're cool. And he said, yep, just checking in on accountability. He probably wanted to make sure we weren't one of these, you know, white families that was going to get a little bit silly about it. And mm -hmm. this guy obviously wasn't a threat. But were I going to call the cops or, you know, what was I going to do? So it was a very positive kind of experience of that village experience. But we had a gate in front of us. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to not share my resources, but that gate, that gate 
Well, it, it provides it, it defines yeah, it defines a spot where if you cross this, now you're entering into a space that is uncomfortable for me. Right. right? Wait, the street, just need the boundary. The street is fine, but yeah. You can't have weirdos just walking into your room at night. You know what I'm saying? So I do wait, I do wanna yeah. I do wanna back up for one second, uh, when you were mentioning about the, the right to exist. And I mm. think that I, mean, I think the the very fact that when you're born Every single person should have that right. And we don't. To exist. And we don't. Even now as a 48-year-old dude, I just feel like I got to keep running. But and even, if I fall but down, even you I have more of a right to exist. Than a lot of people. Than a lot of people. And I guess. Well, that's the point. Yeah. There's a lot of people that we, we even don't treat as if they have the right to exist. It, Refugees. Right. You know. Anyway, I think that that's where there's a great sickness in our mindset. In general. Probably the greatest sickness, that human beings are born onto this planet and that there are people who call themselves upstanding moral citizens, Christians in the West, and they don't see a problem in making folks who are born. By the way, you have to be born, right, for a lot of these pro-life, anti-abortion Christians. You have to be born, but once you're born, you don't have the right to exist. Yeah. So you could starve. You could be forced to, to live with uh, housing insecurity. I'd probably even go a step further that every being has a right to it. So, you know, you look at all these the animals and yes. things. And I, I just think that, that, again, that great sickness of viewing um, almost animals and other people as sort of a tool for our own gain of some mm. kind rather than... a. A mutual respect for their right to exist, right? It, whatever that looks like, as long as you're not hurting other people or, you know what I mean? I, right. I, anyway, I digress, but I, I do think that that's a huge, uh, important piece and, and a, a mindset that I think is, yeah, a very sick mindset that's very uh, prevalent in our culture. In a sense, for the diggers, it is the fall itself. Hmm. The the fall leaving Eden and going, we talked about this with the Adamites on a previous show recently, um, the idea that you're going to have the dominators owning the land, which is everybody's, which is ultimately God's in this con- concept, um, it is the fall. It is the corruption of, of civilization and humanity. It, it is spiritual anarchy, maybe Christian anarchy. Though what I like about the diggers is while they, they set their language in the context of the book of Acts, the early church, there's also a kind of groovy trans-Christian element of mysticism to it, which I'll get to in a second. But here's the main thesis, that anytime you have people that are um, that have capitalist private property or you have a, a, an aristocrat who owns private property and you're not allowed to poach the deer on that private property because of this hierarchy... This is theft. Mm. So private property is theft is kind of an organizing theme of the digger movement, but it's not what they're normally, it's not what they're normally stating. They normally state it as I have the right to farm on wasteland. That's, Mm. that's kind of what the diggers are about. So that if there is unused land, then they can use it to feed themselves if they're poor. And this is, uh, this is very important, especially as we consider what to do with unhoused people in our major cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just about giving somebody a place to be stored and to sleep. I mean, it shouldn't be. Uh, and it's not likely that a lot of the folks that are involved in living under uh, underpasses and tents, a lot of those folks are not going to be in a position or even want to join mainstream capitalist society. But they should be able to contribute to the feeding of themselves and to, to maybe having little gardens and that sort of thing. That would be the kind of spirit of this, that people can produce their own food or do something that's going to help them with resources to produce their own livelihood. So this is spiritual anarchy, I think, at its, at, at its more recent root, as opposed to, say, like the first, the first century. The main character uh, in this is the, this guy, Gerard Winstanley. Um, so uh, Winstanley he he's coming on the scene in the wake of the Reformation, and he just takes it seriously. He says, okay, we get to read the Bible for ourselves. So he does, just kind of like we do, and he says, this narrative's different than what you've been than taught. Than what I've been taught. The, and the story wow. seemed to say. And there's a lot to do with the poor here, and there's a lot of stuff here about the land and how to use the land and how to make sure 
like in the Hebrew Bible, you have uh, this idea of gleaning where the poor people can just come and take from the unharvested fields. Don't go over your field so many times that it doesn't leave something for the poor. That's the, the standard. Um, and there's other pieces there. But uh, he also notices that there's no church in the Bible. <laughs> the, like there is the gathering of the people. He says, yeah, we're going to gather the people together and we're going we're gonna to farm together. And we're going to share our cows. You know, he's a Christian anarchist. Um, but he doesn't see this idea of a hierarchy institutional church. And he's right. It's not there. But there is mutual aid. There's con- concern for ethical land use. There's mysticism. Winston Lee is a mystic. And he, he gets a lot of his certainty about his anarchist perspective from mysticism. And that's why I really wanted to highlight him because we've been trying to tease out this idea of spiritual anarchy as opposed to Christian anarchy because I think it fits better with what we're up to. Even though I come, you come from a Christian background and do not reject the, the important narrative and teachings of Jesus. Same thing for him. But it can't, like I said, it transcends it because for, for Winston Lee, he kind of sees God as um, a word that is important, but obviously can't comprehend everything about what this divine reality is. So he really likes to talk about the logos or reason that fits kind of more with the Greek Stoics and Neoplatonists. Um, but uh, Logos or Reason, it's the Tao. Mm. So it's just really weird to go into the history and find this guy, Winston Lee, who reads the Bible and he says, ah, God is the Tao. And the Tao shows us things about how to behave within the natural world. And he comes to a conclusion that sounds a lot like chapter 80 of the Tao Te Ching, where you have a peaceable village life. So there is a way in which he's a little bit more um, of a... Uh, like, I wouldn't say rationalist, but he, he thinks of God as more of a rational principle, more of the Tao than the old man in the sky kind of image. Mm-hmm. Well, and the old man in the sky image, if that, if that God or that being owns everything, then it's like, it also, I think, gives permission for us, it gives permission for us humans to also own things. Yeah, to sublet it. Yeah, yeah. so God's the owner instead right. of the force of, of, of life that sustains right. it. That's a really interesting thing about how our, our metaphors for the divine work in those those regards. Well, now, you believe it or not, one of the greatest criticisms against Winston Lee was that he believed in works righteousness. So mm-hmm. notice how this works. We've, we've kind of come across this before ourselves. People following Luther... People following the Protestant Reformation say we are saved, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Faith, not works. And in a lot of contexts, that's helpful because we grew up in a very uptight, legalistic kind of Christianity. Which that's not, those aren't the... The, the works, if you will, yeah. that right. Don't are, cuss, don't dance, don't yeah. be happy. Those aren't, those aren't anything that is truly, I think life giving or what it, this existence is all about. I think that the, the differences is like what flows out of you as a person. So it's not about like what good deeds are you doing? But like, if, if, if some of these I, things are in your being, it will just flow out out of you naturally Mm. as part of who you are. And it might look to others like a work or a works righteousness. But if there is like this idea that you have to like go and do something like, Oh, I better go to to be loved or saved or I better, you know, I better go give this person food. It's like, no, it's like if you see somebody suffering, it would be in your being then to want to help them, not a work that you have to do to prove that you're anything. You are channeling the book of James here. Faith without works is dead means not that you're going to go to hell if you don't do good things. It's that whatever you're talking about, if it doesn't produce love and transformation, then it's not the thing. It's not the real thing. And this is what he says. It is interesting that a lot of his opponents are Christians and, uh, and yet it's enlightening, Mm. right? That, that some of the greatest opposition to, even what we're talking about, uh, 
liberating people, giving people freedom and happiness. This seems to be very threatening for some reason to a lot of clergy. And the clergy in this sense then are doing kind of what I think, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer would have called uh, cheap grace, which is, okay, there's all these poor people. You feel a little bit bad about it, but you're forgiven in Christ and they'll all be happy in heaven anyway. So who cares? That's also so they can justify the injustices that they have to do to survive in this world that if you're part of the system, it just oh, yeah. it naturally lends that's to a it. Good so, that's a good, uh, good insight because, right, it's like the, the alternative is dangerous for the person, individual who is asking the question, how am I going to live? How am I going to make money? Right. Every time, I mean, all of us, right. uh, as we look at jobs, you know, I was working at sushi, but I'm, I'm worried about the depletion of the fisheries. Mm-hmm. So like, there's not an easy answer on how can I make money right. and not feel in, entangled in injustice, right? That's, that's so then, part of it. Yeah. So then you are forgiven and then you can, you know, like go, do about, that my business, and go about right? your business and continue a capitalist society yeah. without changing its systems and structures, which is probably seems nearly impossible. <laughs> yeah. As a side issue, friends on forgiveness, if somebody was a capitalist and exploiter and they decide not to be welcome them with open arms, yeah. that's the strategy, bring people in, but that's different. Forgiving somebody for being an exploiter is different from forgiving them every week for exploiting me every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is with works righteousness, that makes a lot of sense. If you've got a heaven and hell construct and if you don't, you know, the idea is if I don't yeah, what do, are you earn, you're earning something, earning your salvation. Well, for Winston Lee, he was also a universalist. He didn't believe in hell. And as we've mentioned before, not believing in hell is one of the most threatening things you can do. You could have a, a different idea about who Jesus was or whether angels have bodies or the age of the earth, but the most threatening thing really is hell because hell motivates the kind of what we would argue um, unhealthy Christianity. Oh yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's behind the whole thing. Well, and there was even, I don't know, there was somebody, you know, if you hear it sometimes like, Oh, well, if there's no hell, then like, what am I doing? Like, forget all this. Well, then you're, again, you're missing the whole point of any of the message of any of it. If, if it all is yeah. just wrapped into you avoiding hell yeah. and somehow, I don't know, being in in heaven for all of eternity or something yeah. instead of, you know, the fire and hell, like that's not that's not even what the Bible is all about. The conceptional view that we are these spirits that are trapped in, uh, in an endless torment, this thing that was so obvious to us growing up, it's not even really biblical. And it's certainly not consistently. And if uh, there is there. a being that can control whether or not that happens, like that, that it is that cool being that. would allow that eternal suffering of the worst kind for eternity, like ever and ever and ever. Like I can't even fathom the evil that I would think would, that would allow that. Right. So we don't if have you, to worship if you that have, God. If you have it in within your control to not have it be yes. that way. In any case, <laughs> Winston Lee realizes this is true and it changes the way he, he interacts with the world as a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he says, okay, wait, this is not about heaven and hell. This is about listening to what Jesus actually said. And then his brother James and like, what were they up to, you know? Uh, and anyway, so they, these cats, uh, the, the diggers, they really emerge out of a related larger movement known as the levelers. And I kind of dig that, that, that name, the levelers. A lot of the levelers were part of the new new model army um, that was part of the civil war. And they were more, uh, they were more militant than the pacifist diggers. So in a, in a way you've got the levelers who are, this is kind of the classic archetypes of, Barabbas versus Jesus, they are the, they are on the, the levelers and the diggers have a lot of same, the same sentiments. Um, but levelers often could have been violent revolutionaries, mm. whereas the diggers were pacifists and nonviolent. Right. Um, in any case, 
uh, from about... How did they get the name The Diggers? Well, this is the okay. whole... Yeah, no, this is very important. So the leveling is nice. I mean, um, uh, it, it related as well. But um, sometimes uh, when I was thinking about it growing up, I'm thinking about leveling hierarchy, that mm-hmm. maybe, maybe part of it. But certainly the levelers movement did reject hierarchy. It believed in natural rights. It believed in direct democracy. That is, we have we vote on things, but we don't vote to have governors over us. We don't elect governors to rule us. We rule ourselves through conversation within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the the diggers uh, again often called the true uh, the true levelers were more spiritual, more pacifist. They drew from acts. Uh, one of the cats who was hanging out with uh, Winston Lee was William Everard. And they were, as I mentioned, agrarian socialists. This is getting closer to this idea of the digging is very important. Um, socialism being uh, not necessarily a state socialism, but just a concern for all members of society, mm. which you see directly in the Hebrew Bible. Um, some primitive... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, some primitivism and primitivism is that similar thing where we talked about the Adamites being naked, trying to get back to a more minimalistic, natural way of life as opposed to heavy scientific technology cities. Mm-hmm. You know. um, but anyway, it was a, a group of folks. They just started planting food crops on St. George's Hill in Surrey. So they saw this leftover piece of land and they said, we're all going to get together. And it was kind of a political act. It was also a a self-preservation act. They just started planting food crops. Now, around this time, there had been some bad harvests. Uh, There was inflation related to food prices. So pretty similar to today. And there was this dude named Francis Drake. Now, that's a a confusing name because there's another... Francis Drake, who is kind of a, a seaman, pi- pirate type guy. Um, but uh, this guy, this Francis Drake, realized that this movement of just the simple act of digging on a side of a hill that no one's using uh, was subversive and dangerous to the status quo. So he organized vigilante attacks on the diggers, including beating them and burning their stuff, arson. Wow. And this vigilante move, this is a great, I think, illustration of, of uh, cultural hegemony at work. Mm-hmm. There were a bunch of probably people that were exploited themselves, that were stirred up by somebody who was high up mm-hmm. to go do violent things to people that were pacifists, that were just trying well, to... Well, and if you uh, get the people under you to do your bidding... it. Yeah, they buy into the whole thing. And that's what you're saying, the hegemony piece. But it's like, yeah, they, they have to then now fully be a part of it. As well as it reinforces to them, that's not the way you do it, folks. Yep. You, can't, you can't do that. And no. then they are trapped in the system. They're like, wait, it's not fair that they can do that. So they want to reinforce that as well. You can't let people get away with freedom if you want to keep other people Unfree. It's like what we talked about with the fool card, just seeing the fool. Well, and and it kind of just reminds me, I don't know for anybody that's seen The Handmaid's Tale, but they would make The Handmaid's Stone another handmaid that went outside of the outer line, yeah. And they made them also condemn them publicly, Mm -hmm. right? Like as a witch or whatever. Not in those cases, witches. But in any case, um, same thing here. The the diggers, you, you can see why anarchists don't like the police. It's not like they don't like order or good good guys, you know. Well, who's, it, who's paying for the police? Yes. And what are the police? What are they policing? So know? the police did not do anything about the the arsonists and the vigilante, violent people mm-hmm. uh, hurting poor, sweet, religious people. They were against the diggers themselves, right? Yeah. Like, so um, then the diggers are forbidden to speak in their own defense. And of course, they're found guilty, but they're found guilty of being ranters, which is kind of fun because I also kind of like the ranters and and they certainly shouldn't have uh, admitted to it if they did. Ranters were kind of like the anarchists that were a little bit more partiers, Hmm. right? Like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you can kind of see this 
as I mentioned, we'll talk a little bit later about a group calls that calls themselves the Diggers in San Francisco later. But the the uh, the idea that you have these um, these ranters going around, they said, okay, now we don't have a king, and now we can read the Bible for ourselves. They just it, they were exercising their own full freedom, and they were partying. And, um, and they would, they would basically be like all in anarchists, maybe unspiritual anarchists. Mm. Any case. I think it's interesting too, because then (laughs) it's interesting, like, oh, just that they were the diggers then that doesn't seem as bad to some people, especially from a moral level or something. Right. Then, oh, if they, they're into lawlessness and all yes. this other stuff, then, then people can all get behind yes. their being illegal. We can't just do anything we right. want. That freaks everybody out. Yep. And, and, and so this false accusation, cause they were not, uh, they were not ranters in the sense that they were pretty pious people, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, this causes them to have to leave their land project. So it's a short-lived project, as many of these anarchist attempts are. Um, but again, it's it's interesting that the upper classes, it wasn't even like, it wasn't the monarchy, because there's no monarchy. The upper classes wanted to be free from the old aristocracy but the, and, the, and the highest levels, but they didn't want the masses to be free because they wanted to be capitalists, basically. I mean, right. they were, this is a nascent, emerging capitalism. So these uh, diggers eventually tried setting up little communities elsewhere, but they just kept getting pushed out. Um, so that's kind of the story. There's, there's certainly more to it. Um, that, that's the arc of the story. Um, Winston Lee, fortunately, he doesn't get killed but they just don't let this movement happen it's kind of like oh we get to be free oh no no not that not that kind of free right but there is uh it is interesting that then later on uh there has been a revival of anarchism in britain especially during the margaret thatcher years and uh, those cats looked back to the original diggers very often. Uh, for instance, in England, you have the anti-roads movement. You got the band Chumbawamba, who we played at the beginning of the show. Um, that that song, by the way, was from these original diggers. Uh, so stand together with us, in the diggers. You know, it's a it's a great uh, great piece there to kind of help you understand it. But Chumbawamba, if you don't know Friends, that's the same band that sings, and I get knocked down, and I get up again. Mm-hmm. That song no, is no, not indicative of most of their music, but they're anyway, they're, they're anarchists. You also, of course, get the punk scene in Britain that had the anarchism as a, as a key part of it. They being probably like the ses- Sex Pistols, a little bit more like the ranters mm, <laughs> right gotcha and so you're always kind of playing with that but this little event from the 17th century during the english civil war um, i remember going through school studied a lot of history this gets set aside a lot in classes now fair enough it's a short thing and it doesn't really have a long effect but i do find it fascinating that that nobody really wanted us to spend much time on what they were after well and why it goes against the whole (laughs) system and the capitalist society whether i was in a church school or in the public schools you know um but i also think because there's no so here's the thing yeah there's no there's there's no order or money in that in the sense like for what they want yeah and when yeah with capitalism like whether you realize it or not money is the god because it's the thing that you know, even if it's not an actual like entity, but it is a thing that is going to control the wave of everything. How do I make more money? Right. Yeah. How, where, where does the money come from? And so it's, it's getting people to buy things or do things or whatever, all for this money, whatever, you know, that's, I mean, what, I mean, that is a God. Yeah. The whole thing, the whole illusion comes down with these guys. They're, that's, that's why it's a threat. And I think, though, that nonetheless, despite the fact that it's short-lived, and and I want to say this, it ultimately doesn't matter whether it's easy to make an anarchist society work. It's either right or wrong. So it might be supremely easy to have an in, injustice-driven hierarchical state that might be easy to create and maintain. And it might be... <laughs> And it might be all but impossible to create a, a loving anarchist state 
that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be what I think is the best. The goal. The goal, <laughs> right? Like that is, so just because it's hard doesn't mean. But well, or, or, yeah, I mean, I think that it is, I'll say, I'll leave a little space, but nearly impossible because that, like, bad infection that's in us, like, we will, we will dominate over other people. We, it, it, it it's in there. It's in our very being. And so we have to find a way to control that in with I, other things. And I think this is the big, this is the big question to what, to what extent is it? I think, um, some anarchists and I, and I would say like Tolstoy's in this boat would say, no, if you get, get the condition, if you get the conditions right, then we aren't really as greedy. You know, if you have a hunter gatherer society, people tend to share mm-hmm. and they tend to share naturally. It's when this other system is imposed on them, you know, that we become the way we are. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe it's somewhere in between. I th- I'm starting to see people uh, acting in ways that are uh, upsetting in such a way that I, I find that maybe our evolution, we have within us rape, pillage, greed, hunger, all the things we call like the seven deadly sins. They come from a misfiring of our adaptive psychology mm-hmm. um, that we can try to overcome. That said, well, I, I don't think it's guaranteed that we can't live together because mutuality works very well in c- certain societies. I, yeah. Well, I guess, so I've been in places that, so I'm thinking of a place where um, basically everybody's going to get fed because part of it is a meal, right? Yeah. And there's still that, like, they don't run out of food. And, yeah. And, and you know that you're going to get, but there's still that temptation to put more of something on your plate, more than mm-hmm. what you need. And I think maybe resting and living in that state for a while will then allow people to then yeah, I live think that's, that way. I but think that's part but of it's it. not like it, it wouldn't, it has to be something, I guess, that you probably wouldn't have to be able to lean into and learn that yes. you can trust it. If you grew up in a world of mutuality, if you grew up in a world of sharing, then it's not as difficult. Mm-hmm. But when you come from it, then you're still, you know, like I remember uh, some stories of, you know, immigrants coming from uh, Eastern Europe to the United States and they just would have, you know, some briefcase suitcases filled with soap. Like, hey, kids, we don't soap's fine. We're not like hoarding soap these days, right. you know, but you're still oh, so caught or, up in that trauma or even like napkins, like when like. When we were in China, like napkins were scarce. And so it became a, like a prized thing to have toilet paper and napkins, you know? And, and then, you know, you come, they like, it's almost unbelievable sometimes they're like, you can have as many napkins as you want here. Yes. But, and, and ironic, not ironically, but interestingly, by the way, friends, if you're teaching English to students in China and you think it'd be fun to have uh, them wrap themselves up as mummies with toilet paper, it doesn't really come across well because it feels like you are squandering something that's both a natural resource and something that's worth money. Yeah. And like something, yeah, something that is valued and it feels wasteful with something that has too much value. Anyway. Oops. Sorry, earth. Sorry, China. Anyway. But here's the thing, though. The diggers, I think they do, I think, give me a sense, though, that that we're on the right track by thinking about spiritual anarchy as opposed to nihilistic <laughs> anarchy. Um, and it doesn't have to be theistic anarchy. That is, you don't have to believe in a specific religion or God. But I think a spiritual anarchy, it's not just for the tenderhearted. I guess I mean, again, a mystical anarchy. Mysticism, the kind that you find in the Tao Te Ching, amongst other places, uh, but, you know, with Jesus, do unto others, you love other people because they are connected to you. It's not just, you should love other people as if they were yourself, but there is a connection mm-hmm. between us. So perhaps it's morally justifiable for us to use violence to end the tyranny of the state and capitalism, but... Jesus and the diggers are basically going to say that the beast is too powerful and big to resist via yang energy to, to borrow from Chinese philosophy. It's, it's just big. Mm. So if you're going to go try to blow up the system, uh, you don't have it's stronger you, than you. Yeah, it just it's happens more yang to be. than you. Yeah. So this is the key question. So, Spiritual anarchists, Christian anarchists, they can't take on the beast directly, but they can demonstrate an alternative community that shows another world is possible. So that's the one thing we can do. We can keep giving these little demonstrations of 
a different world. That's where when the early church is doing something powerful for society, that's what it's doing. You it's living communally. You will know them by their love. Knowing by their love, their non-hierarchical system, um, their sharing. And that's the game. And it's strange that so few have actually had the courage to try and pull it off. But we understand because we've tried it too, and, and it's terrifying. All right. Another more recent uh, kind of anarchist adjacent movement that, dear listeners, you, you might want to look into because I think it's probably a compromise situation that many of us would be comfortable with. And that's Georgism, uh, a.k.a. Geoism, uh, sometimes called single, the single tax movement. And the idea is while people should own the value of the things they produce themselves, the, the economic rent that you get from the land, the natural resources, the common spaces, urban locations, even factory spaces should belong to all members of society. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, like a small town, imagine, there might be an area where you have maybe workspaces and you go in and you, you, let's say you go in at night and you bake a bunch of bread, then you sell it in a market, you should, you should pay a rent, essentially, to that common space. And the rent money doesn't go to a corporation or the capitalist. It goes to the community, re, returns back into the community. Um, if you are farming soybeans... You make the money, you, you do that work, and you can keep the money from what you've harvested, but then some of that money is going to go back to the commons. But the key is that the whole thing is owned by the society, and and this kind of idea of land rights and public finance um, helps to, I think, create more economic efficiency and social justice. So who gets to, to be the farmer? Who gets to... like? They, they legalize marijuana in California. What happens? The small <laughs> businesses, small families that were, were doing this, they kind of get edged out. People of color that have been doing this, uh, that do not have access to the funding to get these big well, licenses. It's expensive. Yeah. It's yeah. expensive to be able to do it legally. So that's the problem with capitalism. Whereas with Georgism, this idea is that anybody who's willing to go do the farming can go make money if they p position themselves to be in that, that space and doing that work and they're going to be taxed on their use of the land. Mm -hmm. But again, this is very different from having like a few rich people controlling yeah. uh, and, and having a monopoly over the space. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Very, very important. And I think again, as we said, this is, this is related to the Joker and fool card archetype, creating these little spaces where you're just going to start digging, you know, um, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, a fun act, you know, mm -hmm. and then setting up networks of support and community gardening and guerrilla gardening is entirely possible, even if we can't bring down the beast immediately. Uh, now, guerrilla gardening is great. It's the same kind of thing where you are unauthorized, <laughs> but you're planting food crops for people to just have. And this is happening all over here in Portland. We'll be walking along. There's figs on the side of the road. Uh, people, people putting stuff in the, in the roads. Um, now, it is true that there are some people that are putting uh, garden planters in the roads in order to keep people from putting tents in those spaces. Mm. It's a complicated question. Um, in, in any case, um, I really like these cats. I think Gerard uh, Winstanley was really interesting. Again, he was the inspiration of the movement. He got his own insp inspiration from another group that's worth looking into, but we can't talk about. And that is the family of love. <laughs> that sounds like about as hippie as it comes. Or culty. I don't know. <laughs> oh, <but> definitely. Definitely. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like we've talked about, like sometimes what you name yourself, it's like, yeah. being, it never turns out to be that. It's like some sort of weird, I don't know if I, I don't know. There is that group called The Family, right? That we saw oh, that yeah. document, you know, the, the documentary yeah, on. And stuff. Yeah, usually. Anyway, I just say it. Yeah, usually family. But you said like we can't that. talk about this. Why can't we talk about The Family of Love? Oh, it's. I, I think I might want to do a whole new show gotcha. on them. They're yeah, a yeah, whole yeah. different we group. We don't yeah. need to digress. Yes. But they were they were kind of that same kind of anarchist group. I'm, I'm saying that there is like this legacy where people kind of bounce through, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, And so you've got this 
little story that's going on. But it, it then kind of uh, comes up again in San Francisco during the Summer of Love. Um, there's a street theater company called the San Francisco Diggers. And my dad always, I think my dad's even mentioned this on the show briefly, mm. where the San Francisco Diggers, they were street, uh, a street company, a street theater company. And they lasted from 1966 to 68. So again, just a few, a couple years, just like the original diggers only lasted a couple years. But they had a uh, funeral for the hippie movement because the hippies had been kind of what they thought co-opted by people that wanted just to use the art for just capitalizing on it, selling Bob Dylan records or whatever, instead of actually... The life. Thing. Yeah. And you also had uh, people moving to Haight Ashbury uh, in San Francisco that were actually just junkies that weren't really creating anything. Mm. So the San Francisco diggers were uh, provocative, um, you know, art troupe, theater troupe that um, that was was really kind of trying to bring that consciousness back into it. But trying to say, no, this is this is not just a cultural thing. This is this i mean it's not just a um an aesthetic right right being a hippie isn't just an aesthetic it is it is a political kind of thing yeah a whole lifestyle and it's not about laziness that's the other thing too because you know like with these diggers right yes like they're not they're not as you said they're not lazy people when you you, i mean you didn't say that but you said that they um they were definitely like these upstanding people like they weren't Mm. it wasn't like they were trying to like just oh I just want to like not have to do anything. I don't want to have to, you know, live in this world Mm. of anyway, I'm just, I think it's easy for sometimes people that are caught up in the system to like look at folks that are rejecting the system and to call them lazy. And so the way to really deal with that, I think you're exactly right. The way to deal with that is to say um, for the public conversation, notice how it's all set up. We've got these people living in tents. Mm -hmm. This is a big problem. Of course, here in Portland, you got these people living in tents. Ah, well, let's get some tiny houses. We'll stick them over here. Mm-hmm. Fine enough. This does not really get to the root of the problem. No. The question is, how are any of us going to survive? Right. And the answer should be, we don't have to talk about violent revolution. You don't have to worry about the black block anarchism. You don't have to worry even about undoing all structures of society. This is a way that we can take it easy mm-hmm. and have some profound change. And that is, we have public land. We've... We've taken this public land for other purposes, like national parks. We've got BLM land, usually not as easily farmable. But if we can start to identify and create green spaces for habitat for animals, Mm -hmm. that's good. We can also do this and create spaces for people to farm. And... In doing this, we can also create spaces for people to farm collectively in such a way that's not state-centered. It's it's spiritual anarchy, but we help each other because one thing we've learned from our gardening experience over this year is we couldn't have done it as easily without the help of our neighbors telling us about what we might have been doing wrong or a way to do it better in our in our context. And on top of that, like all of a sudden, when the tomatoes are ready, we've got like all these tomatoes and it's and we shared them with a friend who helped us right and he couldn't grow it because he had too much shade doesn't have enough sunlight so so this is how we do it like there are things that he can grow and he gives to us and there are things that we grow we give to him um and this mutuality is not something that was created by the state it was just something our own bond our own human bond this cat is really cool uh he also um has these little plant starts that he puts at the coffee shop for uh, essentially abortion rights. <laughs> you know, see, but he's got like his little charity thing going on. And uh, and I say maybe not charity because good anarchists, you know, we're thinking in terms of mutual aid. But we have the things that we have. We're sharing those things. And, and he offered us starts too, by the way. We yes. Want, and we're going to get some. Definitely want to take some to my classroom. But the main thing is um, we need to think as a society at, at the local level, what spaces can we use for community gardening? And just for the environment, just for food security, just for national security. I mean, if, if you, know, you think about what's going on in Ukraine, uh, the, the breadbasket of Europe, when the Russians come in and disrupt things, it has a disruptive effect on people's food. Yeah. So uh, we've also found that when we we're gardening here, we couldn't really survive on everything unless we, had to, we would have to really 
get rid of all the grass. You know, we would have to really pack it in. No, and I know. So we need people are going to need more space. Yeah, I know. That, I know this is like way off topic and and kind of bleak, but um, like, are we running out of phosphorus in order to be able to like? Grow food. This is a good question. I believe that one of the things that we're not paying enough attention to is indeed phosphorus for uh, for farming for fertilizer. This is something that is a rock, but it is not renewable anytime soon. It takes a long time for this for this, and uh, we live as like factory farming and so forth requires this. Oh, so maybe it's just maybe we learn how to farm without well, the, bat the guano, fertilizer, right? Cows. Yeah, I think even as a as a quasi vegan in this context, especially with the the diggers, cows are really important. In fact, you see there's this there's this scene um if you don't mind me reading it because it's really sad, but the tender-heartedness of the diggers I think is helpful. Um the, one of the things they had not only not only did they have um you know, their little farm. Um, but, uh, but they have, uh, they have their cows. Okay. So, uh, really quick yeah. before you say that, but I will say then, then that, that model of smaller farming everywhere in local communities yes. does help, does actually kind of help, um, against that phosphorus problem, right? Like yes. you don't need the big massive farming. Right. If. Right. And composting mm-hmm. and sustainable farming and, and, and all of this and learning how to do these things mm-hmm. is, is really part of it. Well, anyway, so George Winston Lee's gone. The parish priest and the ministers of Surrey, they, uh, they, they got a, a boycott on these people. So they, they, cons- they, they got all the community to say, don't buy anything from these anarchists mm. um, and from their farming. And in, and in fact, this motivates because you got the church on, on behalf of it. They're, they're beating and banishing these folks. I and mean, there's this um, account here that I want to read to you. Then they came privately by day to Gerard Winston Lee's house and drove away four cows. Uh, I not knowing of it. This is somebody else re- recounting it. They took away the cows, which were my livelihood, and beat them with their clubs that the cows' heads and sides did swell which grieved tender hearts to see. And yet he pathetically, but somewhat humorously adds, quote, these cows never were upon George Hill, nor never digged upon that ground. And yet the poor beasts must suffer because they made, they gave milk to feed me. And so I went away and left them being quiet in my heart and filled with comfort within myself that the King of righteousness would cause this to work for the advancing of his own cause. Anyway, you see within the levelers that they have these cows and they've got this compassion on the cows. Mm-hmm. And it's like this great injustice, like these sweet cows. These are our cows and now you're beating them. Why did they beat the cows? To get the cows to run away in fear mm. instead of staying there. So there is a really interesting quasi-vegan reciprocal nature with a cow. And that is the cow poops. You use this for the fertilizer. You can get milk and cheese. This is not those horrific conditions that we've seen before. One in dairy of the chapters farms. of the Tao Te Ching talks about that too, where ideally it's all a natural flow, not like things held in, in uh, captivity. Instead, yes. it's they're just wandering they're around wandering and, and fertilizing yeah. the land for uh-huh. you. And you might have a pen to keep them from getting out of, you know, getting into danger or you know, getting to places where there might be predators. But in any case. Um, just a couple more, maybe a couple more quotes since I've got the, the book out um, related to uh, Winston Lee. Um, again, the Lutherans especially didn't like him because they thought he was a works righteousness guy. But basically, he was pretty sophisticated um, in, in terms of his reading of the Bible and having kind of his own theology. I'm sure he's inspired by some people. Um, but here, here's one thing that he says about uh, uh, government. Quote, Um, this is related to his group. We hold that no man should be put to death for his opinion. No Christian ought to be a magistrate, that magistrates should not meddle with religion, that no man ought to be compelled to a certain faith or to be put to death for his religion. They believe that war is unlawful for Christians, that their speech should be yes or no without any oath. Um, And all of these things were things that the Anabaptists believed. But they weren't exactly Anabaptists. They were primitivists that read the Bible. Hmm. So the thing that kind of unites all these radical groups is they just read the Bible and it's pretty clear that they don't believe in government. I mean, it's like 
if you see it from a historical perspective and you don't believe that the Bible is spiritual anarchist, then you're going to be confused every time you come across these other groups. But if you recognize that the Bible does have that kind of inherent spiritual anarchy within it, then when people read it again for the first time, then, you know, you've kind of got this. Now, there's something interesting that Everard, uh, Everard is the associate with, with, uh, with Winstonley. And when he's asked, what are you guys doing on this hill? He says, uh, Everard says he was of the race of the Jews. Now, what's he saying? He, he, this is, this is part of where their history is a little bit weird, but kind of helpful. What he means is, um, I don't have any allegiance to you. By calling himself a Jew, he's a follower of Jesus. He's a follower of this other religion. There's other Jews around, and he, but he rejects the hierarchy of the church. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And he says, quote, uh, this is Everard, but now the time of deliverance was at hand and God would bring his people out of his slavery and restore them to their freedom and enjoying the fruits and benefits of the earth. So by identifying with the Jews, he says, ah, this is like Moses. Like, this is what we're after. We don't, we don't, the king is dead, okay? And we're going to go free now, you know? Um, but they said they're nonviolent. Quote, they intend not to meddle with any man's property, nor to break down any pails or enclosures, but only to meddle with what was common and untilled. Time will suddenly be when all men shall willingly come in and give up their lands and estates and submit to this community because it works. That was their, their idea. And, you know, in many ways, um, in many ways, this is an, an inspiring story, but it's also a really kind of sad story because I can't, can't find that many, yeah. you know, um, but you would think it'd be so easy, you know, for people to see that this is true. But, uh, but ultimately the reason I think you've already mentioned it, that people can't see that it's true because it is too frightening. They don't know what they're going to do in a new world. A new world's possible. Mm-hmm. Another world's possible. The only people that are really cool with that are people who are complete losers in this world. Yeah. Right? For the most part. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast, I'm not sure which one, and they were talking about how the top, you know, what we, it's, there's no, um, everybody knows that the majority of the wealth, uh, especially in America or the world, I guess, is owned by a few individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, is that those individuals, if you're paying attention to what they're, what they're doing, they're not using, really, they're not looking at how um, they're going to fix the problems of the, of this world, this earth. They're looking at how to get off the planet. They don't have the Jesus spaceship. So they're not saying, Hey, I'm going to go into the afterlife. They're saying, okay, I don't have that. So how am I going to get to space? Well, because, a bunker in Antarctica. And, and what do they know then about our planet and where it's at? They yet? know that they've been raping and pillaging it. Exactly. And and now they realize I, I, they're, they aren't trying to fix it or help with that and keep the game going is what how they how it's kind of worded in the, yeah. I guess in this podcast. They're instead like trying to figure out a different game. And that is very telling. Yeah. Um, and it's like for those of us that are happy to be here on this beautiful earth like well beautiful but you know it looked like the apocalypse outside friends and i but i think that, looks, that's what they know though, it's too, hard to right? breathe outside right now the the, yeah. the sun yesterday was was just blood red it was covered it, with so smoke is it that they say it can't be fixed which is why they're looking for off the planet but also they don't really then care at this point if they feel like it's past the point of no return they're just yeah. going to keep exploiting it until they can keep using those resources to figure out how to get off of it. I yep. don't know. I'm just a saying a very different it. model, a very different model than the agrarian socialism of the, of the Jesus loving, uh, Winstonly, yeah. you know? And that's why I would say like, is there any hope? I mean, my kids, I was just in three days. I've just really fell in love with the, just the conversation with my middle school students. They are delightful, amazing, artistic students. I will talk about it some other time. Too good uh, to be true. Scholars. You mean, we don't call them students because there's no hierarchy. Yes. But I'll tell you this. Um, thank you for reminding me. Um, I can, I could use a little hope. Uh, me too. I could use, this is why I say spiritual anarchy. It's like, we need a narrative. We need a myth to help us to create a world. If there's any chance that we're not going to just poop in our, in our fish tank until we suffocate in our own poop. Um, 
this is the kind of thinking that's going to do it. And maybe people didn't realize how serious it was until today, right? Um, but I still think that this is what we should be fighting for. I mean, we have, I think we have a moral obligation to consider this spiritual anarchy, agrarian socialism, trying to recover a way to live like Tao Te Ching 80 says with the, with the land and each other. Um, and so maybe to conclude, there were so many quotes, I didn't know which one to grab, but if I can have you read, Stacey, uh, George Winston Lee on the resurrection, because just a few episodes ago, we were talking about like, do we believe in the resurrection and what does that mean? Here's Winston Lee on um, the resurrection. Friends, do not mistake the resurrection of Christ. You expect that he shall come in one single person as he did when he came to suffer and die and thereby to answer the types of Moses's law. Let me tell you that if you look for him under the notion of one single man after the flesh to be your savior, you shall never, never taste salvation by him. If you expect or look for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you must know that the spirit within the flesh is the Jesus Christ. And you must see, feel, and know from himself his own resurrection within you, if you expect life and peace by him. And so friends, we kind of hope you can taste some of that resurrection because we agree with George Winstonley that that's the sort of thing that brings peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.